Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. We get Easter on Memorial Day. Isn't this peculiar? It says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. And Father, we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts and our minds that we might be able to receive what your spirit would want to say to us personally this morning. Lord, we stand before you attentively. We believe that you're a living God and a God who has a living and a present word for us today, that you're a God who speaks. So, Lord, would you show yourself this morning for who you are? And would you speak to us this morning in a personal and a powerful way Lord, use your living and active word in our lives this morning. Bless your word as it goes forth, for we ask in Jesus' name expectantly, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I will never forget the day in my life about 20 years ago uh, when I had the privilege of discovering Tricia May Lackey. Now, she's the good-looking blonde in this place that's attached to me just for awareness sake in case you don't know this morning and I'll tell you this I had actually heard about her from a friend prior to the time that I had met her but once I saw her for myself and once I discovered her for myself let me tell you wow it changed my life and it continues to change my life in wonderful ways. And in the same way, I tell you this this morning, it is true that when a person sees and discovers Jesus Christ for themselves, it changes their life. You can hear about Jesus from someone else, but when you see and discover Jesus for yourself, it will change your life. You know, the passage in front of us that we are studying this morning, you notice, you see the first discovery here of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that morning when he rose from the dead. You have a group of women who initially we see come to the tomb seeking to do something actually for Jesus and having no idea that they actually were going to discover something about Jesus, which really, again, radically transformed their life forever. It transformed them from that moment forward because they discovered for themselves that Jesus is alive. And when they discovered for themselves that Jesus was alive, it transformed them. And again, this morning, if you and when you discover that Jesus is alive for yourself, it will change your life. You cannot meet Jesus Christ personally, truly, and it not change your life. It's impossible because Jesus will radically transform your life in a wonderful way. Now, as a background, remember, as we come into this last chapter, we studied chapter 3 and we saw there the crucifixion of Jesus. 
We saw the death of Jesus, and we left off with the burial of Jesus. And the chapter ended by telling us that there were a group of ladies who were the last ones, interesting. All the men had fleed, and and a group of women were the boldest and most courageous followers of Jesus who were standing there, the last ones, by his cross, waiting and watching him suffer and die. And then they watched, remember, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, who we talked about last time. Joseph of Arimathea, this man who was a very wealthy man, it says he was a council member, a prominent council member, and yet the Bible says he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And yet at that moment, when something traumatic happened in his life, it was the event and moment in time where, in a sense, Joseph had his coming out experience regarding no longer trying to hide the fact that he genuinely wanted to follow Jesus and he was following Jesus. And remember, he took this bold, courageous step to demonstrate outwardly his commitment to Christ. He bravely goes to Pilate and daringly asks for the body of the Lord Jesus, that he might give Jesus a decent burial so that his body wouldn't be desecrated as crucified victims often were. And remember, Joseph, in haste, together with Nicodemus, the Bible tells us, quickly prepares Jesus' body for burial, washes and wraps the body, puts it in his own tomb, a very expensive, expensive thing for anyone to have in that day, but yet wanting to do something for Jesus, probably no doubt because of his love and probably maybe even a little bit of remorse of why have I been so ashamed of him? I've got to do something for him now when he finally came to that place. And remember, because the Sabbath drew near, he quickly prepared and put the body in the tomb. And the group of women were watching. And they were witnessing what was going on at that moment and that Jesus didn't quite get the typical, proper, honorable embalmment process that a body would get And they wanted to do the best for Jesus, so they returned home, prepared spices and fragrant oils, intending to rest on the Sabbath and then return and finish the day after the Sabbath to finish caring for this process of Jesus' body being buried properly. And at this point is where our story then picks up in verse 1, telling us, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the Sabbath has now passed, It says, they and certain other women came back to the tomb, notice, bringing the spices which they had prepared. So Luke records this event now of the group of women who waited it out on the Sabbath, returning now back to the tomb where they saw that Jesus' body was placed by Joseph and Nicodemus, and approaching the tomb where he is laid. And we see when it was, verse 1 tells us, it was very early in the morning. The other Gospels tell us it is still dark, so it's just prior to dawn. And it says that it was actually on the first day of the week. Now that would indicate to us clearly that it is Sunday. Because the Sabbath, we know, was the last day of the week for the Jew, the seventh day, which is Saturday. So here we find ourselves now early Sunday morning. And notice why they were coming. Verse 1 tells us that they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, indicating they were coming to the tomb to finish this uh, anointing or embalming process of the Lord's body. They had prepared the fragrant oils and the spices and they were coming back to finish this process because it had been done in haste the day in which Jesus had died. Now, please understand, this process, really this anointing process, it kind of had a dual function. It was both a practical thing that was done as well as really just a personal way to honor and show your love and respect for the one who was deceased. It was practical, quite obviously, because bodies in that mid-eastern climate, they decomposed rather quickly. And because of that reality, very quickly a decomposing body would start to rot and smell. So these fragrant oils and heavy spices, at times up to 100 pounds worth, were used to be placed upon the body of a dead loved one, really to minimize the odor of the decomposing body so that as people came to the, the burial site, like we would maybe go to a, you know, a memorial service of viewing, those spices minimized the stench of the body so that loved ones could pay their respects and they could grieve over the loss of their loved one without sort of experiencing the offensive odor that could come from a body. 
In the same way, it was a, a very simple way of showing personal appreciation for someone who had passed and, and to go through the process and the expense to do what you could to just show your last respect. So here they are now. They've come to the tomb. They want to show their deep appreciation for what Jesus, listen, had meant to them. And I emphasize that for this reason. Important that we understand as we look at this this morning, the heart condition of these women coming to the tomb early that Sunday morning. You need to realize these women were not coming with the overflowing joy and excitement in their hearts, believing that Jesus had risen from the dead. That was not the case, and they didn't get the privilege to read the rest of the chapter like you and I do today. They were coming at this point, not expecting in great faith to discover something. They were coming, please understand, despairing, brokenhearted, in deep remorse and grief. They were discouraged and despondent because the one whom they loved greatly had just died. And at this point in their hearts and minds, they are under a great burden of disappointment. Though they're drawing near to the Lord that day, yes, they were drawing near with a sense of discouragement and despondency, with a heavy heart of despair. And from their perspective in that hour, what they're feeling, they are feeling at this moment as if everything has just gone wrong and everything has just failed. The Lord whom they loved and followed, he had just been brutally beaten and suffered and died in crucifixion upon a cross. And at this point, they feel like everything has just gone wrong. And mostly they are there at a spiritual and moral obligation to just do the right thing. No doubt thinking because of what just happened and how he tragically died, the least that we can do is go and give him a proper burial and, and, and make the best of this unfortunate event. But their hearts were heavy and they were full of sadness and full of discouragement in that hour. And by way of application for us this morning, perhaps honestly that describes some of you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you've come to the house of God, you've sought to draw close to the Lord, but truth be told, if we were able to know more about what's going on, maybe you're here this morning and you're very brokenhearted. Maybe you're very discouraged. Maybe you're really weighed down. And right now, maybe you're in a place where you're really struggling with some real disappointment over some things. Maybe recently in your life, you've gone through the painful process of the death of a loved one. And you're still grieving and nursing the raw pain and the wounds of that and that sense of discouragement and kind of that dark hour that we go through in grief. Maybe you're here this morning and recently... Something hasn't gone the way that you planned. And things kind of crumbled and the dream that you had or the idea that you thought was going to come to pass didn't. And, and you're here this morning and you're quite disappointed. And you're struggling with disappointment this morning in relation to something in your life. Maybe you're here and you've gone through a difficult change recently. And all of a sudden everything has just changed and transitioned and you find yourself in a really dark hour. And the lights have gone out and you kind of feel like you're just wandering through the dark and you're trying to figure it out and you're going through a tough time and you're wrestling maybe with despair or depression or discouragement and you find yourself struggling. Listen, little did these women know who were feeling the same things that day. Little did these women know that what seemed like the dark end of something was actually just a step in a process that actually was going to bring something far better than they ever could have imagined. They had no idea that that greatest hour of darkness that they were in really was going to also be the, the, the thing that precipitated the greatest moment of incredible glory as they discovered something incredible, that Jesus Christ was alive. And that would change their lives incredibly. That darkness, in some ways, understand, was intended really to sort of maximize the darkness. It was intended to maximize the brightness of the glorious thing God was about to do in their life. You know, Jesus prophetically referring to the events of his death and his resurrection said this. Listen to Jesus' words in John 16, 20 to 22. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. Listen, Jesus said, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. 
A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers their anguish. For the joy that a human being has been born into the world, therefore, he says, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And Jesus said that in relation to his death and then his resurrection. How initially they would be in a dark tunnel and a difficult hour and it would seem hopeless and despairing and discouraging and they would be sorrowing and grieving. And Jesus says, but that sorrow, very quickly, that moment of sorrow, it will turn to the greatest moment of joy that you've ever experienced in your life. Listen, gang, we need to remember it is always darkest right before the dawn right before the dawning of a new day is always when it is the darkest and such often is the case with our lives i have found in my life you have probably experienced in your life or maybe you're experiencing presently the reality that sometimes we must pass through a dark time in life first in order to fully discover and to see and experience the glorious new day God has on the horizon that is just right over the other side that's coming in front of us. And sometimes this is just the way it works. Perhaps this morning, if things are dark in your life, that could be an indication that there is a dawning of a brand new glorious day ahead of you. You know, the Bible gives us such great encouragements in our lives. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Our God is a God who commands the light to shine out of the darkness. Romans 4 says, Our God gives life to the dead and calls those things that do not exist as though they did. The Bible tells us so well in Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. And let me encourage you this morning, if it's dark in your life and you are here and you are feeling hopeless, let me just encourage you, hope in God. Hope in God. You watch. You wait. Watch what God does. He has a marvelous way of taking the darkest hour and the most difficult moment and somehow by his power and his amazing grace and his love for us to take the darkest hour and to turn it around into the most bright and glorious thing and bring about the dawning of a new day and blow our minds. So you hope in God. Are you downcast this morning? Hope in God. Don't look at the circumstances. Don't pay attention to how you feel. Just hope in God and watch what God is able to do in your life. Well, as these ladies come, they're despondent, they're discouraged. Look at verse 2. It goes on to say, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So as these ladies showed up, this would be quite shocking. As they're coming back to the tomb, they did not find things the way that they expected to find them. It says, as they came that day, they found that stone, the large stone, rolled away from the tomb. Now, tombs were typically carved out of rock, like caves. And then what they would do when they were ready to seal the tomb, when they were ready to seal the tomb, there was then sort of a, a large circular-shaped stone, usually about maybe up towards to about 12 inches or so thick, four to six foot tall, and weighing hundreds of pounds. And they would then roll this in sort of a channel in front of the entranceway of the tomb to shut it off. Now, keep in mind, that massive stone is extremely heavy and very hard to move. Okay, this is not like sliding your patio door. Okay, this is a massive, heavy stone, which typically took multiple strong men straining very hard to move a stone like this in front of an entryway and also to, to move it back as well. So not to mention as well, another detail Matthew fills in is this, and listen to what Matthew tells us. It tells us, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and religious leaders gathered and went to Pilate saying, listen to what they told Pilate, Sir, we remember that while he, Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and then say to the people, he's risen from the dead. 
So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know. So they went, listen, and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So we need to recognize as these women are coming back to the tomb that day, they had watched how the religious leaders also got what they requested, that the Roman soldiers would come and that they would shut the entryway with one of these massive stones and they would then seal it and post a Roman seal with the authority of the Roman Empire and post a Roman military guard there in front of the tomb because the religious leader said, we need to do everything we can because if his body's missing, then his disciples will make up a story that, that he rose from the dead somehow. So these women watched Jesus' body get sealed in this tomb with this heavy stone and a Roman military presence be there so they know the weight of the stone they know that the tomb has been sealed by the Roman guards who are posted there and Mark 16 verse 2 tells us that as these women are on their way that morning to the tomb that they were having a conversation and listen what it says it says that they were saying among themselves listen who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us See, as these ladies are walking there that morning toward the tomb, they're logically contemplating, knowing the weight of the stone and the strength of the Roman military guard that's there in front of them, they're saying, what are we doing? How are we even going to get access to the tomb to get in there to the Lord's body? Who will roll away the, the stone from the tomb for us? That huge stone, is what I want you to see, presented a major obstacle in their path. It was a legitimate barrier they were facing and it was something that they could not remove on their own and it was something they couldn't resolve on their own. Unless someone helped them, they could not have access to what they wanted to do. As they arrived, they're facing a major barrier. They know it's a major barrier that they can't resolve on their own. But yet verse 2 tells us, look what it says, when they arrived, they found. They found the stone that was a major barrier for them, they found it already removed and the obstacle and the problem was already taken care of. The other Gospels tell us that God sent an angel down to roll back the stone and give access to the tomb. Point being, and here's what I want you to see, that God already removed the huge problem they were concerned about before they ever showed up and had to face it themselves. Here's this massive problem, this incredible barrier. They realize we can't solve this unless somebody else helps us or gets involved. There's no way we can fix this ourselves. And they're facing this legitimate barrier, this massive problem. And what does God do? God intervenes before they even get there and have to face it. And he resolves the problem for them. And he rolls away the barrier and it says literally that they found the stone. They discovered, wow. It's already been taken care of. Imagine that. They just found the problem already resolved. And isn't this so often, honestly, the way of the Lord? The way that he works in our lives as well? Where God looks at what is truly a human impossibility and he says, perfect, human impossibility. God says human impossibility becomes his opportunity. His opportunity to say, I'm going to have to get involved here and show them my power and show them that I can resolve their problems for them. You know how it is. We live out our lives on this earth. We encounter real life problems. We face things. We pose, you know, we find ourselves posed with sincere challenges, things that we can't resolve. And what happens? If you're anything like me and maybe you're more spiritual, I'm posed with a sincere problem and I realize I can't fix this. I don't have the strength or the power or the ability or the authority. I can't resolve this myself. It's beyond my ability to do anything humanly. And what happens? So we start to fear and we start to worry and question how's it going? How's it going to happen? How are we possibly going to get past this barrier or deal with this obstacle? And we find ourselves going through that process because we realize we don't have the ability and we don't have the answer to our own problem to fix things or handle it on our own. So we start to wonder and worry, how in the world? How in the world are we going to deal with this or face this or get through this? And what's God doing? He's looking down and all the while he sees the need and he's aware of our inability and I think even waits to the point where we start working through the process of recognizing our own inability. And then, 
as a loving father with a weak child at just the right hour, hearing our concerns, our loving father, just like with a weak child, he, he intervenes and he takes care of the problem for us. And he steps into our life and we find ourselves just like these women that day, discovering, I know I do, discovering continually the faithfulness of God at work in our lives. It's like the experience of the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 14 where Moses, as they're there at the Red Sea, remember, they have the Red Sea in front of them, they have two mountain ranges on both sides of them, and they have the Egyptian army breathing down their neck, and they are in a quandary. There is nowhere to turn. They have threat of an enemy behind their back, they have two mountains on each side of them, and they have a massive sea in front of them, and they are in a quandary that they can't fix and resolve, and Moses declares this, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Stand still, God says, and just see the salvation of the Lord that he will accomplish for you today as he rolls away the stone, as he takes away the barriers, he opens up a way that there was no way. There was just no way out. But that doesn't mean God doesn't have a way out. And God has a way to do this, to remove barriers and obstacles for us. Hey, what barrier and obstacle are you facing this morning? Is the problem too big for you? That's okay. God knows that. God is aware of that and he is able. Luke 1 tells us that with God nothing will be impossible. Now on your own, it's impossible. The key there is those two words, with God. With God, nothing is impossible. There's lots of things that are impossible on our own. But if your life is with God, you and God are a majority. No issue anymore. With God, nothing's impossible. God tells Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18 as they were facing a dilemma of, of barrenness. And, and God, how's it ever going to come to pass? We know this is your plan. We know this is your promise. But circumstantially, Lord, we're in a real problematic situation. We can't make it happen. God says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Finally, you realize it's too hard for you. But is there anything too hard for the Lord? It's a redundant question. Of course not. Psalm 37 tells us this. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. There's the answer. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him and he will bring it to pass. And like these women, you will find the faithfulness of God demonstrated in your life so often. Psalm uh, verse 3 tells us, Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So the surprises for these women that day just continue. Again, they discover not only an open tomb, which would have shocked them to the core, but then on top of that, they go in, and once again, they discover things were not as they anticipated. They go into the tomb. It tells us that when they arrived, they went in because the stone was rolled away, which again is interesting. It shows us something. The real reason... That, that angel that was sent from God opened up that tomb, listen, please understand, was not to let Jesus out, okay? It's not as if Jesus arose from the dead and then he's outside, hello, can somebody come open up the tomb here and let me out? Father, would you send it? That's, Jesus was gone. The reason God sent an angel down to the earth to open up that tomb was for what you read here in verse 3 so that people could go in and see that his body wasn't there anymore. God rolled the stone away from the tomb, not so Jesus could be let out, but so that people could look in and see the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. He's not there. He is risen. And the fact that Jesus is alive and there's an empty tomb in Israel is the most convincing proof of who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who's got up from the dead. Interesting, this is the first place in the New Testament where you get the term, in verse 3, the Lord Jesus. What a fitting place. First time in the New Testament, that phrase, Lord Jesus, shows up, and it's here. Because there is no greater revelation that he is who he is than the fact that he defeated the power of death. 
and that there's an empty tomb there. No other religious leader, no other self-proclaimed Messiah has an empty tomb. They're rotting in the ground. But not Jesus. He's alive from the dead. That's what makes him distinct and makes him different. Verse 4 goes on to say, And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. So this whole experience, all of a sudden two angels appear here. You can imagine what these women are experiencing as they're taking this in moment by moment. John's gospel tells us that Mary Magdalene, when they first came to the tomb and saw that it had been opened, that she departed from the rest of the group and she ran back to Peter and John and and, and sort of just was in a hysteria thinking that his body had been stolen. She didn't wait around like the other women did and sadly because she didn't wait around, she missed the revelation that everybody else got. She ran off thinking that his body was stolen. The other women here, however, they stick around, they wait, and they're trying to understand why isn't his body here. At this moment, we read two angels appeared to them. Interesting, it seems in the Bible when angels appear among men that they appear as men. Uh, Hebrews 1 tells us that angels were created to serve as ministering spirits sent forth to help those who will inherit salvation. And that's what we have here. These two men, angelic beings, standing there. Verse 5 tells us that then the women, it says, were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. And they said to the women, notice their question, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. So at this point, the women clearly recognize that this is a divine intervention. These angels are reflecting, no doubt, the glory of God. They've come from the presence of God Almighty, and they're reflecting God's glory. And because of that, it causes these women to realize this is a divine intervention. They fall down, they bow their faces to the earth in reverence before God. And at this point, notice the angels ask these women a very searching question. Look at the question they ask. They say to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's almost as if they're perplexed. And what are they doing? They're trying to stimulate in the minds of these women the awareness that, look, you're seeking Jesus the wrong way. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? This is where dead people are usually at. It's almost as if they're subtly reminding these women that they were seeking Jesus the wrong way as if he were just like every other religious or spiritual leader who had died in times past historically. You know, he was was just a good moral teacher. Uh, and, And he was a prophet of God or he was a miracle worker whose life should be followed and emulated. But listen, Jesus is not among the same category as other religious spiritual people who've died. Jesus is in a category all to himself. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords and the one who had come to earth to live sinlessly and then to suffer sacrificially as our substitute, to be crucified and to raise the third day so that he might reconcile men back to himself and reconcile men back to the Father. So the angels asked this question. I think it was meant to reveal a spiritual reality. Notice, they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living? The emphasis, I think, there is on the living, indicating Jesus is not someone who just lived a great life. Jesus is presently alive. He's among the living. And these angels want these women to realize, listen, Jesus didn't just live a good life. He's alive right now. He's among the living. He's rose from the dead. They say he is not here, but he is risen. And listen, so important that we understand and live conscious of that spiritual reality. That we don't worship and follow Jesus as the one who just died on the cross for our sins. It saddens me almost, and please understand what I mean by this. It saddens me at times even when I see Jesus in you know, jewelry or pictures and he's still hanging on a cross. He's not hanging on a cross anymore. He hung on a cross to die for our sins, but that's only half the story. If Jesus just died for our sins, then we're just following a dead religious leader like lots of other people on this planet are. We're not following a dead... We are following the King of kings and the Lord of lords who died as a man for our sins, but then rose from the dead 
and is alive. He's alive. Jesus said in Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives, who became dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. I love how Jesus said as well, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst. Listen, we need to realize, God help us in the dullness of our hearts, that we need a present encounter, a present reality, a consciousness that Jesus is alive. If Jesus means what he says and said what he meant when he says two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst, that means, God help the dullness of my heart, Jesus is in our meeting. He's alive. He's with us and among us. And in our everyday Christian life, there is nothing that we need more than to realize that we're not just following some wonderful dead religious leader. We are following a living Christ who rose from the dead and wants to have a relationship with us. He's alive. And he wants you to... That's why it's about relationship. It's not about being religious. It's about relationship. Our world misses this reality. The unsaved world misses this reality. I, I, I fear more and more too that there are people who go to church and yet they never come to Jesus. And going to church almost becomes a smokescreen for coming to Jesus. Because you can go to church but never come to Jesus. We're not coming to church to memorialize some dead. We're here to worship and meet with a living Christ, a living Savior who's among us and who's in our midst and wanting to minister to us and touch our hearts and reveal himself to us and speak to us and say things to us and receive worship from us. We don't just sing to sing songs to sound like a pretty choir. God help us, we're not doing a good job. I sing to Jesus. I'm not singing for who's next to me, and they'd tell you that real quick, unless I hate them. I'm singing to Jesus because he's here. And I'm, I'm singing my love and expressing glory to him because he's worthy of my praise. And here, these angels wanted these women to grasp, he's living, he's not here, he's risen. He's alive. Notice they then conclude verse 6 saying, Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying to you, they remind them, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Verse 8 says, and then notice they remembered Jesus' words. So these angels give a loving exhortation to these women here to try and awaken their minds, to help them kind of, if you could, connect the dots that they weren't connecting at this moment presently to realize in the dullness of their unbelief the spiritual reality that was right under their nose and yet they were kind of missing it. So the angels here remind them of what Jesus had been predicting to them all along as he was following them. That he had been telling them these things would happen. Again, if you look back in Luke 9.22 or Luke 18.31-34, Jesus had been foretelling in advance that this is exactly what he was going to do. That he would be turned over to sinful men, he would suffer, he would be crucified, and he would raise the third day. Unfortunately, they always heard suffer, die, and then they missed because they were so discouraged that he was going to rise the third day. And these angels are trying to remind these women, listen, remember, Jesus told you this. He told you, they say, verse 7, the Son of Man, that he must be delivered into the hands of sin. In other words, look, Jesus, Jesus told you these are things that were necessary. It had to happen. He must be crucified and die because that would pay for the sins of the world. And he must rise again the third day to overcome the power of the grave to be a living Savior. So that when we want to experience salvation, I'm not praying to some decomposing body in a grave saying, forgive me my sins and give me access into eternal life. No, I am praying to the one God and mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who rose from the dead, who is alive, who can presently save me from the penalty of my sins and who can save me from the present power of my own sinfulness and set me free. And the one who's alive who will be waiting that when I die to say, Father, I know him, he followed me, I have a relationship with him, grant him access into eternal life. And this is so essential that these angels are trying to awaken these women's memory to the reality. Listen, 
don't you remember he said that he must do these things and they quote the words of Jesus in verse 7 to these women and notice if you would as they quote Jesus's words to these women it causes an experience to happen with these women that day it says all of a sudden Luke just says verse 8 the Holy Spirit tells us that they then remembered his words Just a short phrase, but it indicates something so profound that happened for those women in that moment. At this point, as they hear the words of Jesus, listen, it triggered in their mind a prior spiritual knowledge of the things that they had about the Lord. Because he had been telling them these things. And as they hear the words of Jesus spoken into their lives... It triggers a prior spiritual knowledge which then brings about beautifully a spiritual awakening in their soul. And all of a sudden, in that moment, for those women, it clicked. Do you get what I'm saying here? All of a sudden, they got it. All of a sudden, they had that moment themselves where they came to realize and believe for themselves what's true about Jesus, that he is alive. They were having that powerful moment of personal discovery regarding Jesus' life. Let me say that again. They were having in that moment that powerful personal discovery of the reality of Jesus' life for themselves. I can't help but to wonder what they were thinking or maybe it's not recorded what they were saying. No doubt, oh my goodness. It's true. I see it now. I see it now. And let me just tell you something. That is what God intends for every person to have. God intends for every single person to have that similar experience whereby they have a powerful moment of personal discovery regarding the life of Jesus Christ. That's what the heart of God is for every person. That the Spirit of God working through the Word of God would awaken the hearts of people to the realization to have an encounter of, oh my goodness, now I see it. I see it now. And maybe things that they were taught growing up as a kid and they heard Bible verses or they heard things about Jesus and and it, it, it never made sense. And then all of a sudden, they hear the Word of the Lord and it awakens Oh my goodness, I see it now. I see it for myself. And they finally discover the life of Jesus for themselves and they have a conversion experience. Or sometimes I think for some people there's a deeper lordship experience where all of a sudden they see it for themselves and, and they've always been perplexed at everybody else. But then that hour comes as God ordains that time in their life when they see it for themselves and it all clicks and they have a spiritual awakening and they have an encounter with Jesus and they go, oh my goodness, this is true. I see it for myself now. I understand it. I grasp it. And look what happens when that takes place. Verse 9 says, Instantly they returned from the tomb. And they went and told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And it records the women who went, it says, and told these things to the apostles. So at this moment, as they discovered Jesus for themselves, at that moment, they do what? They become the first ones to run off enthusiastically and start proclaiming the good news. It says they went and told everyone else that was around what news they had just discovered that was life-changing. It almost as if it was just a natural response. It was just a natural response of coming to the personal realization of who Jesus was for themselves. They wanted to go tell people. Nobody would say, and by the way, you should go preach the gospel to others. Didn't happen. Because of that personal experience with the Lord, they just wanted to go and share. And can I just say again, by way of application, I think this is why it is so wonderful to see somebody get converted. Because when somebody is converted and somebody has a born-again experience and and when they come to know Jesus Christ for themselves, they become the most enthusiastic evangelists on the planet. Isn't it true? It's interesting how you don't usually have to tell a brand new convert to go share their faith. Sometimes you almost have to tone them down. Listen, you're driving people crazy. You know, temper it down a little bit. Appreciate your you know, love and wisdom. and it just They become natural evangelists. In the same way, I think that when we have powerful personal encounters with Jesus, I'm telling you, gang, those are the things that inspire us to go out and share our faith. 
Lord, would you reveal yourself to me afresh in such a way that my heart will be inspired, not obligated, inspired to want to just go tell other people about you and what's true about you and what you've done in my life. And these women go with enthusiasm. They're sharing the news. Look, however, at the reaction in verse 11. It says, but their words, as they shared them, seem to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. So as they come with an accurate report about Jesus and an enthusiastic report, notice that they're not really well received at first. In fact, to make it worse, the Bible actually tells us that the words of the testimony of these women actually seemed like idle tales. The Greek word there indicates nonsense. It's a medical term that was used in that day to refer to the kind of wild talk that might come from a person who was mentally delirious or someone who was mentally deranged and was imagining things. So in essence, their words seem like idle tales as they recounted their testimony about Jesus with enthusiasm. Literally, people who were hearing it were thinking and and in essence kind of saying to them, come on, have you lost your mind? This sounds like a bunch of nonsense. Have you ever heard somebody say that to you before? <laughs> if you go and you want to talk to somebody about Jesus and what, and, and have you lost your mind? What is up with you? Why are you so excited about this Jesus person? This heaven, it just, it just almost sounds just like, like you're out of your mind. You're just so enthusiastic. Par for the course. In fact, it tells us even here that those who heard... It says, verse 11, also that they did not believe. Again, the language indicates that they kept on distrusting. It's in a present. They kept on distrusting. The Bible is trying to tell us that they would not submit themselves to believing what they were hearing was actually true. Interesting, Mark 16 tells us that later on, Jesus goes and appears to the 11 disciples as they sat at the table. And it says, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Listen, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, to me, that's interesting. Please take note. Jesus wished that the disciples would have just believed the testimony alone itself. That's what he wished. But the wonderful thing is when you study the gospel accounts, you see that Jesus ultimately revealed himself personally to those individuals who didn't believe initially. And to me, I find that beautiful because, listen, if you're here this morning and you've sought to share with people about Jesus and maybe they've responded negatively... Maybe they've responded critically or they stubbornly refuse to believe. Do not be discouraged. Don't give up. And, and, and don't all of a sudden think and figure that it's just not possible. Jesus is not defeated. Trust me when I tell you. And Jesus is more than able to overcome skeptics and stubborn hard hearts. What you need to do is realize there's a spiritual blindness that the God of this age has put over their eyes so they don't believe. And what you need to do is step back and pray and intercede that Jesus will give that individual their own revelation of himself and who he is in such a way that their heart would be open and their mind would be blown and they would say, I see it now. I see it for myself. God's still able. God's still able. Well, look at verse 12 as our account closes out. Luke adds this interesting note about Peter. He says, Peter rose, notice, ran to the tomb, stooping down, and saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now, though this is part of the resurrection events that happened after Jesus rose from the dead, looking at all the Gospels combined, you'll notice that chronologically, that verse in verse 12 that Luke gives us, a little insight about Peter, it doesn't seem to fit chronologically with the flow of our events in verses 1 to 11. In fact, you might want to put in your notes John 20, verse 1 to 8. Because here's exactly what happened. Let me briefly summarize. Peter that day was not running to the tomb in response to the women who came back to share report of what they had heard from the angels that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, what happened is this. Peter is going there in response to Mary Magdalene, remember I mentioned her earlier, who when she first showed up at the scene, saw the tomb opened up, she turned hysterically, ran back, left the rest of the women there who received the revelation from the angel and then themselves departed. 
Mary ran back, it says, went to Peter and John and started saying to them, someone's stolen the Lord's body. He's not there. We don't know what happened to him. It's to that that Peter and John jump up. They run to the tomb. They arrive there after the other group of women have departed. They enter in. They see the linen clothes of Jesus there lying by themselves without the body. The Bible tells us that John instantly believed when he saw the empty tomb. Peter, however, we read here, he saw but departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Indicating this, the idea being, that Peter mauled it over in his heart and mind to come to his own conclusion. Unlike John, who believed instantaneously, Peter, who we know ultimately believed, seemed to sort of depart and process things a little bit himself first, and to come to his own conclusion and belief, yet Peter ultimately becomes a very strong and a solid believer. Point being this, we need to realize God's wired people differently. And we have to remember this and be patient and let God work in people's lives. Whether you tend, listen, whether you tend to be somebody who believes instantly and right away, or whether you tend to be someone who needs to process and then respond to things, let me exhort you with this. The most important thing is this. Hear me. You have to keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking until you discover Jesus for yourself. Please understand Jesus wants to show himself to you. Can I dare you? Can I double dog dare you? Maybe you've been raised in a Christian home and exposed to the things of Christianity and you look at your parents' Christian life and you think, well, I, just, I just don't see it. What are they so... Listen, I dare you. Jesus, would you show me who you are? Would you reveal yourself to me? Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian. You've been considering the claims of Christ. What is it? What's the... Listen, I dare you to ask, to seek, to knock. Jesus, if this is all real... Show me. Show yourself to me, Lord. I guarantee you that he will. And if you ask, he will answer and it will change your life. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. We'll have our worship team come and close us out in a final worship song. Father, thank you for your word, for the truths and things that it conveys to our hearts. And Lord, we ask this morning, even as we would turn our hearts in a final song of worship, that, Lord, you just move among us even subtly and lovingly in this room. That, Lord, you would tap people on the shoulder and you would touch their hearts. And that even in the midst of this song, Lord, as we sing the words to you, that, Lord, you'd reveal yourself among us and minister to us where we're at. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.